Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, if you haven't yet, please navigate your way to Romans chapter 4. We are spending yet another week in this wonderful chapter. Uh, hopefully, going to finish it up next week before we move on to Romans chapter five. Let's, uh, before we begin, let's have one more word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word, and Lord, as we come to it now in a special way to, Lord, hear it proclaimed. We we pray, Father, for open hearts, soft hearts, and uh, Lord, a sensitivity to uh, just be able to hear your spirit, Lord, uh, calling us and convicting us and leading us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would bless your church now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin, I wanted to begin my my sermon this morning, which is entitled, The Promise is Guaranteed. I wanted to start by kind of quizzing you with a couple of of well-known guarantees, man-made guarantees, that were sort of famously broken. Okay, see if you can pick up who, who gave these guarantees. First one here from the realm of politics. Really, I could have done a lot of them here, but I just picked one from the realm of politics. See if you know this one. Read my lips. No new taxes, right? You guys know that one, right? Who was that? George Bush, right? George H.W. Bush. Now, this one, I, you know, I, I was looking for a, a sports guarantee. You know, you always hear these, these sports guys bragging they're going to win next, next week, right? And then a lot of times it doesn't happen. But I, I had a hard time finding one that was really famous. But I found one from a local sports team here. We'll see if anybody knows it. He said, quote, I thought we'd win the Super Bowl the first two years. I guarantee we'll win it this year. Does anybody know that one? That was Rex Ryan, the, the former coach of the New York Jets. I stress former because he did not keep that promise. How about from the Bible? You will not surely die. Right? That's a guarantee that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve. Or I thought of this one. Even though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Right? Peter. And finally... Just the church in general. Here's one quote. And in closing, right? It's every pastor you've ever known, right? <laughs> well, you know, I often look for some sort of guarantee of satisfaction when I'm when I'm making a, a purchase of some sort. And you probably do the same. Looking for some kind of a guarantee that this product is is quality. Um, you know, if you ever walk into a store and you sort of see one of those handmade signs taped up behind the cashier that says all sales are final you should just turn right around and not buy anything at that store right have you ever seen stores like that no guarantee right if you buy it it's yours don't bring it back some guarantees on the other hand really amaze me when you buy a product um, you know you can buy mattresses these days on the internet right and when you buy them, they, they come rolled up. It's, they're, they're made of foam or something, and they come rolled up, tightly rolled up in this box. 
and you, you pull the thing out of the box and it's like one of those expanding air boats. You know, once it comes out, you're never getting it back in that box. And yet there's a guarantee after, I don't know how many months, um, you know, you can sleep on the bed for months. And if you're not satisfied, they guarantee you can send it back, right? And I think this is the way they overcome the fact that you never actually tried out the bed in a showroom somewhere, right? So it's the way they get you to plunk down your money. But it's a pretty good guarantee. You can sleep on the bed for, for 90 days or whatever and then send it back. Maybe go to another mattress company, get another one for 90 days, right? And just keep, never have to buy a bed in that way. But, um, you know, some, some guarantees are, are pretty good. But even the best of, of human guarantees has a limit on them. Whether it be 90 days, you know, whether there's you, you got to always check the fine print, right? The, the terms and conditions and limitations of, of the promise. But unlike man-made guarantees and promises, when God makes a promise and when he guarantees his promise, it, it is completely certain that he will fulfill it. Um, God is not like us in, in those ways. And those who wait upon the Lord by faith don't have to worry about the faithfulness of God uh, to deliver, um, just like that, that psalm I quoted in, in the opening from Psalm 34, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Uh, the Lord is good for his promises. What God promises by faith, he fulfills by faith. But you see, the problem is that we tend to think that what God promises is at least partially up to us. Right? We, we think, yeah, God made that promise, but I need to make sure that it happens. You know, we, we put that burden many times on ourselves. We think God has done his part, now I must do mine. But, you know, I hope you can see that, that when, the minute you do that, you're basically rendering the promise of God as no guarantee at all. Because if it depends on you in some measure to bring it about, then it, its fulfillment is uncertain, if not doomed. So what God promises, he fulfills. And in today's passage, we're going to see that God's promise to Abraham was given in faith, and that it's even now being fulfilled by faith. Right? The promise comes, comes by faith and is fulfilled and it's realized by faith. Um, whereas the law, on the other hand, clearly serves a completely different function in our lives. So first up, let's have three points. First one here, God's promise was given by faith. Look at verse 13. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Right? It was given, the promise was given to Abraham by faith. We've been looking at this chapter here. Paul's been teaching on the, on the topic of justification by faith ever since the middle of chapter 3. And justification by faith is, is simply this, that how, how can an ungodly person like you or I ever hope to stand before a holy God and be considered righteous. Right? To be justified is to be declared righteous. We often uh, intuitively know what it means to justify ourselves. If we're 
if someone accuses us of something and we begin to sort of argue with them about why we actually didn't do that or why we aren't guilty of that, we're justifying ourselves. But when it comes to standing before God someday, we're not going to be able to stand before God and justify ourselves to God. Right? God knows the, the thoughts of your mind. He knows the intents of your heart. And he sees it all and he knows. He knows that you are not righteous. And so how can ungodly people ever hope to be declared righteous before God? It is by faith. And Paul's been teaching that ever since the middle of chapter 3. Now here in chapter 4, he's been applying that specifically to an Old Testament example. He's been applying it to Abraham, the, the forefather of the faith, the hero of the Jewish faith. Um, all the way back, he's, he's not only the, uh, the, the forefather by the flesh, but he's the, the uh, founder of the nation, and he's even the founder of the faith, if you will. He's all those things wrapped up into one. So Paul re returns to this hero of the faith, and he shows that Abraham himself was not justified by works, but Abraham was, according to Genesis 15, 6, he believed God, and God counted it, <laughs> counted it to him, as righteousness. So, God made many promises to Abraham in the Old Testament. Made many of them. Uh, including a, a promise of land. Right? He said, leave the land of Ur and, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. He's, I'm going to give you this land. And, and, and once he's there, God tells him to look to the north, south, east, and west. He says, everything that you see is going to be your land, the promised land that I'm promising to give you. And he was not only told he would receive land, but he was told that he would be a father, he would father a nation. Even though he was childless, he was told that he would be the father of a nation. And then later, God expanded that to say, not only are you going to be Abram, the father of a nation, but you are going to be Abraham, the father of many nations. Abraham was told that his, his descendants would be innumerable. He told Abraham to go outside, look up at the stars. If you can number the stars, Abraham, that's, then, then you can number your descendants. And probably the most, the, the broadest promise of all to Abraham, the one that you know, just really resonates with me so much, he talks about blessing those who bless Abraham and also that Abraham would be blessed not for himself, but so that through him, the whole world would be blessed. He would be a channel of blessing to the whole world. And so all these promises, even though they're, they're sort of many in, in the way you could express them, they're really one giant blessing or promise of blessing, right? And, and I love the way Paul sums it up here by, by describing it as... Uh, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. How do you get from a promise of a little bit of land in the Middle East to an heir of the world? You know, it's clear, I think, that Paul sees the ultimate fulfillment of this promise in the person of Jesus Christ. He sees the promise to Abraham ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And, you know, when you think about that, when you think about what God has done through Christ, 
the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is so much grander than anyone could have ever anticipated, right? So we see in these promises to Abraham sort of like the seed of, of the, these promises, and they must have seemed like such big promises to Abraham. You know, Abraham didn't even have any children when God gave him this promise, and yet God said, I'm going to make a nation of you. I'm going to make many nations of you. The, the promises must have seemed so small, or, or so, so big, I mean, to, to Abraham. And yet the actual fulfillment was even grander through Jesus Christ. I mean, you open up your, your New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament is this. Matthew chapter 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And um, God, God kept his promise already in that way through him. Jesus Christ is the offspring, singular, who is spoken of in these promises. So back in the Old Testament, when God spoke, of, used the word offspring, it was, it was a singular word. He, he, he wasn't it, it wasn't a, a plural word talking about all the many little offspring. He, he, he was speaking of this promise to the offspring, and it was referring to Christ. Paul makes a big deal about that in Galatians chapter 3. So Jesus Christ is the offspring who is destined to be all in all. And, you know, we, we can see all through the New Testament, places like Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul talks about Christ... Jesus Christ one day being all in all. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, speaking of Christ, and God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Right? He is all in all. And Paul he prays there in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Ephesians would, would have the ability to, to understand and to grasp just the, the vastness of, of the riches of his glorious inheritance for those who are in Christ. It's a, it's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around just how blessed we are in Christ as Christ is, is set to inherit the whole world and as we are in him we along with him will inherit all things look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 21 Paul speaks here about he, he's encouraging Christians not to boast and, and to be competitive and to, to um, you know, think of, of oh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, you know, dividing up over, around certain leaders. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And this is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham thousands of years ago. And the fulfillment of it is so much grander than Abraham could have ever even imagined. Excuse me, I'm fighting with the wind here. 
So, with all that said here, the promise was given to Abraham by faith. Right? It, it wasn't given in the context of law. God didn't say, here, Abraham, do X, Y, Z, and then I'm going to give you, uh, then I'm going to do these wonderful things for you. No, he, God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham simply believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Um, so the real question that's at stake here that Paul is, is raising here in Romans chapter 4 is how, how is the promise of inheriting the world received? How, how did it come how did it come to us? And um, Paul answers this question really forth, forthrightly here in verse 13. He says that the promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You know, he's, he's establishing that the law itself is, is not really a necessary component of being saved, of being justified. You, you don't need the law in order to receive the promise. God didn't require Abraham to keep a law before declaring him righteous. No, God in his grace made promises to Abraham. Abraham simply believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. You know, promise and faith just go hand in hand in that way. It, it's, on the other hand, a completely different path, the, the path of self-seeking law-keeping self-justifying keeping of, a, of a, some sort of a, a law code or a, a standard of righteousness. It's just a completely different path. In, in a, a parallel passage in, in the book of Galatians, by the way, if you didn't, if you never realized this before, Galatians really is a sort of like the book of Romans, like the light version of, of the book of Romans. Right? They're very, very similar. You can kind of compare different passages for the book of Romans and flip over to Galatians and see how Paul said it in Galatians. And you can often study those books side by side with one another. Well, in, in the parallel passage in Galatians chapter 3, to what we're studying this morning, uh, Galatians 3 verse 17, Paul begins to make a chronological argument about the law. He, he's basically saying very similar to what we looked at last week, that Abraham was justified by faith before, well before he was ever circumcised, right? He was, he was justified in Genesis chapter 15, and then 10, 15 years later, in Genesis chapter 17, God finally gives him the sign and the seal of the covenant. And Paul brings that up. It's a chronological argument to say, look, Abraham was justified without circumcision, so you must not need circumcision to be saved. Well, Paul does a very similar thing in the book of Galatians with the whole law. Galatians 3.17, he says, This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. He's making another chronological argument about the coming of the law. So Abraham was justified by faith, and then 430 years later, through Moses, God finally gives the law. So the argument is the law doesn't then negate the faith of someone like Abraham that took place 430 years prior. That's just not the way it works. So Paul could have made a similar argument here in the book of Romans, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't make a chronological argument about the law. Instead, Paul goes on here to 
to focus in on the results of law keeping. In the very next few verses here, verses 14 and 15. So my first point was that God's promise, it, it is given in faith. And now the second point here is that God's promise would have been voided if it would have been given by law. And we see that in verses 14 and 15. Let's just read a little bit of that here, beginning verse 14. Paul says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. You know, if the way to inherit the world is through law-keeping, then Paul says here the, that faith is nullified and the promise is just completely voided. Why is the way of inheritance by faith nullified by the way of inheritance by law-keeping? Why does law-keeping nullify faith? Well, it's because faith and, and law are complete opposites. You're either working by some law principle to, to earn your your justification before God, or you're trusting in God to justify you through Jesus Christ. You can't have it both ways. You can't be doing both things at once. James Boyce, pastor over at, at 10th Pres in Philadelphia, he said it this way. He said that, that trying to hold faith and law together in, in this way would be like trying to leave, leave let's say you're in Kansas, and, and you try to go towards New York and California at the same time. <laughs> I mean, th that's exactly uh, what it would be like to insist that we are saved by, by both faith and works. But Paul insists here that the promise does not come through the law in any way. And, and not only does, does the way of works nullify faith, but Paul says that it actually renders the promise itself void. It voids the promise. And why is that? It's because if the, the keeping of the promise is left up to you and to me, if it's, if it's up to you and me to inherit the world by how we live out the law, then the promise is worthless because no one's going to be able to keep the law. It's an empty promise, if you will. You know, you've heard people say before about even human covenants and contracts that, for example, let's say, let, just take a, a marriage covenant, a, a promise to be faithful in marriage. These days, there's so much skepticism over whether or not someone will actually be faithful in their marriage that they say, why do I need to get married? Uh, you know, a, a marriage license is just a piece of paper, right? There's no meaning to it. Well, that's essentially what, what would happen to the promise of God if it was up to us to keep it. Right? It would be just a piece of paper. It would be just an empty promise. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said that if the promise had been made through the medium of the law, what God was giving, as it were, with his right hand, he would have been taking back with his left hand. There would have been no promise at all. It would have had no value whatsoever. If you need convincing on that point, all you have to do is go back and look at, at Romans chapter 3. Where Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Right? We spend a, a long time on the first three chapters of Romans. And it was to, to really grill, grill into our heads here this truth that if the promise were up to us, we would never fulfill it. Now, Paul goes on here in, in verse 15, beginning of verse 15, to say that the law, all, all that it does is bring wrath. It says the law brings wrath. The law left on its own would only lead to our destruction. And that really is the, the function of the law. The, fu the function of the law, if you think about it, is to tell you what to do, what not to do, and then to condemn you when you don't do it. Right? Isn't that the, the function of, of the law? It's to point out to you what to do, what not to do, and then to condemn you when you don't do it. So this really raises the question, well then, is the law no good? Is the law bad? And Paul doesn't address that here in, in Romans chapter 4, but he is going to address that in detail later in, in the book, in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, and particularly in verse 17, if you want to flip over there and look at this for a moment, Paul's going to be addressing this very question, is the law bad? And he basically concludes that the, the, the law's function is to show sin to be sin. Look at, look at chapter 7, verse 13. He says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So Paul's basically saying here that it's not the law. Don't blame the law. The law is not what's, what's bad. It's the law is merely pointing out to you and me what sin is. Paul will say back, if you flip back to Romans chapter 4, Paul says here in verse 15 that without, trans, um, without law, there is no transgression. So I think he's basically beginning to answer this question, well, is the law no good? But he, he kind of doesn't follow through on that discussion. He kind of reserves it for chapter 7, but he begins to answer that question, is the law then pointless or, or is it even bad? But he points out that we do need the law. We need the law to show us how we are transgressors of the law. How we are sinners before God. You know, the way that um, the law of God works is this. The law itself uh, comes along and it shows us that sin is sin, right? Sin is there whether or not we have a law or not. Whether or not God says you shall not do fill in the blank, right? It, it, the law doesn't create sin in us. Sin is already there. But then the law comes along and God is basically drawing a line in the sand and saying, making it really clear, you shall not, you shall not cross this line. <laughs> and the way our sin nature works is the minute God does that, the minute God draws that line in the sand and says, you shall not cross that line, sin in us is inflamed and suddenly we long to cross that line don't we and then when we do do cross that line the law functions to then alert us to the fact that hey now we've you have transgressed the law 
Without the law, there is no transgression. You don't realize that you're sinning, maybe. But then the law comes along and it makes you doubly wrong by, by making you a transgressor of the law. I, I was reading an uh, illustration this week uh, by a guy named Christopher Ash, And uh, he put it this way. He said, it's like when you're, you're walking in the countryside and you come across some private property and, you know, it's always wrong to, to trespass on private property. But you become doubly guilty if you walk straight past a clear, no trespassing sign to do so. Right? That's, that's how the law functions in our life. It's like a no trespassing sign. And God erects it. And, and the sin that's in our heart leads us right past that sign and we blow right by it. And suddenly now we're transgressors of God's law. So the law is good. It's necessary. It's as if the law really is like a mirror showing us our sinfulness. One preacher put it this way, he said, A mirror is not a, a defective mirror because it cannot clean your face. That's just not its job, right? The function of a mirror is to show you that your face is dirty so that when you know it's dirty, you will get some soap and water and wash it. In the same way, the law is not bad or defective because it cannot save you. That's simply not its function. Right? The, the function of the law, it was not to deliver to us the promise. The function of the law was to show us our need for Christ. So thirdly here, the, the, the promise of God was given in faith. If it had been given by the law, it would have been voided. And thirdly and finally here, God's promise is therefore guaranteed by faith guaranteed by faith. Look at verse 16 here. Paul says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. What God promises, God fulfills. Having you know, taking the, the fulfillment of the promise completely out of the, the man-centered arena, Paul is now saying that it is entirely in God's arena. The promise rests completely upon grace. These things all go together, faith, grace, and even the guarantee. Right? Grace enables the promise to be guaranteed because its fulfillment no longer depends upon our faithfulness, but entirely upon the faithfulness of God to accomplish what he says. So this, this church is where you find your assurance of your faith, the assurance of your salvation. It, you don't find it in, in your ability to keep some sort of a law code, but you place your faith in his ability to keep his promise. That's where the guarantee lies. Not in your abilities, because the promise does not come through law. You place your assurance in his ability to keep his promises. I think, you know, this is one place where, where people sometimes get off base. I've seen in, in a lot of circles places where, where people subtly shift the emphasis 
off of God's grace being poured out on us through faith. And instead, they begin, they almost place the emphasis on my ability to muster enough faith. They, they almost turn faith into sort of a virtuous, meritorious act that I must do. Right? And, it, and you, better, you better work up enough of it, right? or you're going to fall short. But by contrast, I, I love the passages in the New Testament where Jesus speaks about faith being only a mustard seed size, right? And he says that, what, with, with mustard seed size faith, you can move mountains. Why is that? It's because it's not the size of your faith that matters. It is the size of your God that you place your faith in that matters. God is able to, to fulfill the promises that he makes. And it's not about the you working up some meritorious amount of faith that will somehow trigger God's gracious response. No, God works. The promise rests upon grace and is guaranteed upon his sovereign initiative. This is how the diverse family of faith could be guaranteed the inheritance of the world here. This is, this is where we find the guarantee that we shall inherit the world, not through our works, but through his faithfulness and through his grace. The promise was given by faith, and it is even now being fulfilled by faith. Look at, at verse 17 here. I'm sorry, look at the middle of, of verse 16 here where he says, he talks about this promise coming to the whole family of faith here. He says, not only to the adherents of the law, that is, uh, he's not just talking about Jews in general there, but I think in this context he's talking about the promise coming to the Jewish Christians who perhaps still view themselves as adherents of the law. Uh, it comes not only to the adherents of the law, that is Jewish Christians, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that, that being sort of a, a reference to Gentile Christians. He says, uh, he then lumps these two groups together and says that we are all of us, children of Abraham. Abraham is the father of us all by faith. Now look at verse 17. He says, as it is written, and he quotes Genesis 17 here, I have made you the father of many nations. It's God's promise once again stated in, in Genesis chapter 17. And he says that that promise is given in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Here, the, the argument subtly shifts from talking about The, the faith versus the promise coming by faith versus through the law. And now he's subtly shifting the argument from the promise of God to the nature of the God who gives the promise. And the nature of the God who gives the promise is this. He is the one who can raise the dead and he can actually speak into existence things that, that did not exist, right? By the very power of his words, ex nihilo, he can speak it into existence. 
that is the character of the one who gives us this promise. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Let me finish up here with just giving you two conclusions, two points of application. First one here is a question. Are you using a mirror to try to clean your face? Are you using the mirror, instead of allowing the mirror to simply point out your need for Christ, are you trying to use the mirror to clean yourself up? The law, as I've been saying in the sermon, was never intended to, to cleanse you. But it's like a mirror that shows you your need to be cleansed. I think some people take a glimpse in the mirror of God's word and they, they simply walk away from it, denying what they saw. But others have the, have the perhaps more ridiculous reaction of trying to use that mirror. I just have this image of, of someone with a dirty face rubbing their face on the mirror trying to get clean. Right? It doesn't work. That's what using the law to try to inherit the promise looks like. It's not going to work. But the law can only reflect what's already there and the law only brings wrath. Instead, we need to repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's going to say at the end of Romans chapter 4 here that Christ was crucified, that he was um, delivered up for our trespasses, and that he rose again for our justification. He is the one who fulfills every requirement of the law, including the penalty of the law, in order that we might simply place our faith in him and be cleansed and, and become inheritors of the, of the whole world through him. Secondly, another question for you. Are you filled with the hope of your inheritance in Christ? This passage speaks of us being inheritors of the world. Inheritors of the world. And as I mentioned, Paul prays in the book of Ephesians that the Ephesian Christians would understand a whole bunch of invisible spiritual realities that are now hidden from the eyes of Christians. Right? There are a whole host of truths that are even now true about us in Christ. But they're hidden from our eyes. And one of those things that is invisible to us now is our inheritance. One of the things that is invisible to us now is our inheritance in Christ. We shall inherit the world through Him. You might be the poorest person in this church. You might be the poorest person in your neighborhood, the poorest person in your family, whatever. You might have you might not even own your home. You say, Man, I don't even I don't even have any inheritance. I never received inheritance from my parents. I never I don't have anything to pass on to my kids. But in Christ, you are an heir to the promise of Abraham. And you shall inherit the world in and through him. All things are yours. All things are yours. And, you know, I, I just want to encourage you, you know, as we, especially as we walk through these dark days, right? It's easy to, to get your head down. And, and, and as 2020 unfolds in a way that 
you never could have imagined, right? All your plans are in the gutters. <laughs> I've been seeing on, on social media, a lot of people posting these pictures that say, 2020 be like, and then there's like a picture of a guy and he gets like out of nowhere, just tackled by somebody, right? That's, that's how we feel right now. Like, like we had all these plans and suddenly they've been changed. Well, maybe for you, life in general hasn't worked out the way you anticipated. Praise God, though. Because if, if this world, if you get disenchanted with this world as a Christian, may we get that much more enchanted with the world to come. May we set our hope completely on the hope that will, uh, may we set our hope completely on the grace to be revealed to us at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We, we are heirs of the world. I've, I've been, I have found myself these past couple of weeks reading the beginning of the Bible, the first two chapters, where God created the world and there was nothing wrong in it. I love, I just love the, the picture, the beauty of it, how bursting with life it is, how, how free it is. God says, you may eat of any of the trees of the garden. So completely free. And everything you could ever want, right? And most of all, God was there. I just love, I long for that, right? And then you look at the last two chapters of the Bible. I've just been listening to those on repeat through my Bible app. I just love the picture of the, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And there's this, God sets up his throne here on earth. And there's this beautiful river that flows out from his throne. And the, the, the tree of life takes root next to this river and we have nothing but eternal life and satisfaction it's it's eden restored if if not even better and most of all god is with us and we shall reign with him forever i mean christian get your head out from the 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 cloud that we're that this world is in right now and set your hopes on your inheritance right, we have a wonderful hope with which to 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 gladden our hearts in which to rejoice this morning. Paul said in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And he says it's a safeguard to us. Set your hope in the promise. And hallelujah, it comes by faith. The promise that comes by faith. You don't even have to earn it. You just have to believe it. You become an inheritor of the world through Christ. We have an incredible hope. And I think during these dark days, we're tempted to, to feel ashamed or to feel downcast. I think, I think inheritors of the world by faith. Pray prayers that you find all throughout the Bible, all throughout Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 25, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Right? Even if, if you are in a position of shame and loss, even persecution, if we as a church begin to face persecution, the scriptures promise, indeed, none who wait, none who wait for him, 
shall be put to shame. I, I cling to that promise. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. We can trust God's promise. He has made a promise to us of an inheritance, and he will fulfill it. It rests solely on his grace. It's fully on his shoulders. Psalm 34, 5, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Place your faith in him. Don't put your faith in your own abilities. And praise God this morning. Praise God that, that we can be filled with hope, even in dark and divisive times. So let's go to him now in prayer and, and just rejoice in that together. Father, we, we do bow before you. Lord, we rejoice in our inheritance. Father, I pray that the members of Old Bridge Baptist Church would be radiant with the hope of their inheritance. God, if they came in today down and discouraged and depressed, God, I pray that you would lift their eyes up to your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And God, that you would cause them to shine with the radiance of the glory of the children of God. Lord, we are co-heirs with Christ. Lord, help us to know it. Help us to hope in it. And Father, I pray that, Lord, if there's anyone here who has never trusted in Christ, Lord, that they might turn from the hopes of this world. They're so fleeting. And that they would be able to place their hopes in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. Lord, we know who we worship. God, you are the God who raises the dead. And God, you can speak into someone's dead heart and raise it back to life. Just with the power of your word. God, you are the God who speaks things into existence that we're not and Father, we trust in you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.